Welcome to Series 2 of the Saltwater Strategists, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region. I'm your host, Jen Parker. As the world becomes increasingly dependent on maritime trade, it's critical that we understand the challenges and opportunities in this competitive environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics, international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit self-supporting organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. This episode of the Saltwater Strategist is also proudly brought to you by Lurson Australia. In this special series of the Saltwater Strategist, we are bringing you three lectures from the recent Goldrick Seminar held in Canberra on the 19th of October. An annual Australian Naval Institute seminar in honour of the late Rear Admiral James Goldrick, one of the most prominent maritime strategists and maritime historians Australia has produced. In episode two of this series, we'll hear from Professor Beck Strading. Beck Strading is the director of La Trobe Asia and a professor in politics and international relations in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy. Her research focuses on maritime disputes in Asia and Australian foreign and defence policy. In this episode, we'll hear Beck talk about the influence of sea power on Australia's security at the recent Goldrick Seminar. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, thank you to Peter and the ANI for inviting me back to, uh, to speak today. It's always wonderful to visit uh, Ngunnawal country and I pay my respects to elders past, present uh, and emerging. Uh, I was set the topic, the influence of sea power on Australia's security, and that is a very big topic. So I did what all sort of academics like to do and went, well, what is sea power? Uh, And so the basis that I'm starting on is, well, what do we mean when we talk about sea power? And as Michelle pointed out, um, there's actually different ways that states utilise sea power, whether it's to do with the blue economy or whether it's to do with other sectors, uh, and that there are various dimensions of sea power, whether it's political, whether it's diplomatic, whether it's related to the economy. So I'm going to try and flesh out some different types of sea power that affect Australia's security uh, and then try and think about what Australia needs to do to respond to that. But I did want to start with uh, an observation that last month, US Secretary of Navy Carlos de Toro called for a new maritime statecraft to prevail in what he described as an era of intense strategic competition uh, during remarks that he made to Harvard University. So this is an idea that encompasses not only the concept of naval diplomacy, but a national whole of government effort to build comprehensive maritime power, both commercial through the blue economy and naval, but also on the basis of different forms of diplomacy. And he specified climate diplomacy as one area in particular. Uh, And these are the sorts of issues and interests uh, that play well, particularly uh, in Australia's region uh, that we now think about uh, in terms of the Indo-Pacific. So we also saw some similar language around whole of government, national approaches to security in the Defence Strategic Review that was released earlier this year. I'm sure that you're uh, all across the basics of national defence, as the DSR called it, which emphasises that Australia should be using 
using, maximising all elements of national power in order to defend its security interests. So it is a contemporary reality that integrated and complex security challenges, including in the maritime domain, require uh, what Michelle called the holistic and comprehensive approaches, uh, not just to blue economy, but to maritime security strategy more generally. Uh, and some of us have been sort of arguing this for a while, but I guess you could argue that the devil is in the detail. It's all very well and good to stand up and say, well, we need a more comprehensive approach, but we we have more than 20 government agencies that are dealing with various aspects of maritime security and we don't even have a clear uh, definition of what we mean by maritime security. Just to get back to this main topic of the influence of sea power in Australian security, well, I've got kind of three questions, if you like, three ways of thinking about this. The first is, how does different forms of sea power shape regional and international order? That's the first question. The second is, how and why does that matter for states, particularly smaller and middle powers in the Indo-Pacific? And three, what can middle powers like Australia do in order to try and shape a favourable regional and international order through its own deployment of sea power? So sea power, I think, is conventionally defined through the commercial and naval strengths of states, their capacity to uh, project maritime power and to implement a maritime strategy. Uh, it has been typically viewed by naval strategists uh, in particular as the basis of maritime order, one that has historically uh, shaped the world. But Sea power is much more than naval capabilities and naval diplomacy, as we know. We know that it also incorporates, you know, while it's hard power is an important part of that, it also incorporates soft power. Michelle talked a bit about the soft power elements uh, in the blue economy, as well as what we might now describe as sharp power. So if we have a broad conception of sea power, I want to propose four types of sea power that can shape regional and international order that matters for states like Australia. So the four types are structural sea power, economic sea power, civil sea power, and normative sea power. So if I start with the concept of structural sea power, the oceans and the use of sea power and the naval balance of power has historically played a central role in the character of international order. It was A.T. Mahan who said that whoever rules the waves uh, rules the world, as command of sea lines of uh, communication have been central to building and sustaining economic power and wealth. So sea power was instrumental, for example, uh, in the growth of European empires and in sustaining the global power of the United States since the end of World War II. So borrowing from the work of Robert Kahane, who is an international relations theorist, I contend that there are four classes of structural sea power. And this really depends on a state's ability to shape or affect global order. There are system determining states, the big naval powers that can play a critical role in shaping the international system through sea power. So at the moment, we're really thinking about the United States and China as the system determining uh, big naval powers. In the second category, we have system 
influencing states. These are states, they cannot be expected to individually dominate a system, but they may nevertheless be able to significantly influence its nature, including through things like naval power and diplomacy. But there might be secondary powers like Japan, for example. System affecting states are the third type of state. These are those that might struggle to affect the system acting alone, but can nevertheless try to exert impact on the global system by working through small groups, by working through alliances. And we see that traditionally Australia has been in this category of system affecting states, middle powers that need to work together with other states in order to try to influence global order. But on this, I think we've taken a slightly different direction. Australia has for a long period of time sort of seen itself as a middle power um, in a global context, but increasingly we're seeing Australia as not just wanting to be a system affecting middle power, working uh, in collaboration uh, with smaller states. It wants to be a system influencing state. It wants to, to nudge itself up into the secondary tier of power. And it's doing that, uh, one, through sort of growing uh, naval capabilities, but also through the use of mini-lateralism. So AUKUS, as an example, as well well as uh, its membership of the Quad. I think what we're seeing through Australia's Indo-Pacific strategy, and let's not forget the Indo-Pacific is itself a maritime construct, uh, is Australia wanting to play a bigger role in shaping and determining particularly the regional order. And then the fourth type uh, is what Kahane calls uh, system ineffectual states. These might be, for example, coastal states, island states uh, that are small states. They can't hope to have a big naval presence. But I wouldn't say that they are ineffectual. I would push back on Kahane there because some of the small coastal states across the Indo-Pacific region are actually really able to exert influence, particularly collectively and particularly in areas like shaping maritime norms or engaging in uh, collective diplomacy in order to defend their maritime interests. And I'll get onto that a little bit later. But states like Australia, we can try and influence the naval balance of power, but ultimately we're not going to be the big system determining states. We have to cope with these big system determining states like the US and like China. Uh, and in that, through uh, agreements like AUKUS, I think what we're seeing is Australia playing a kind of role in balancing with the United States uh, in trying to manage the changes that are emerging uh, within the region. So, I just wanted to observe, in 2020, there was a defence strategic update that really highlighted how concerned defence has become about the extent to which Australia's regional security environment has deteriorated. And that concern was echoed in the defence strategic review, which recognised that the United States is no longer the unipolar leader of the Indo-Pacific and identified intense China-United States competition as the defining feature of our region. 
The DSR singles out China's assertion of sovereignty over the South China Sea, among other activities, as threatening to the region's rules-based order. So what we are seeing here is that the maritime has become a theatre for strategic competition. The way that states like Australia are talking about the security environment is actually homing in on disputes that are occurring within maritime theatres. These are disputes over some of the central norms that underpin maritime order. So the review also observes that China is engaged in strategic competition in Australia's near neighbourhood. So in this first category, sea power, structural sea power, is about the ability of states to use maritime sea power uh, or the presence of the maritime as a theatre for strategic competition to advance a particular vision of regional and global order. And one of uh, the big questions, I think, is what does China's maritime disputes or naval build-up tell us about the type of great power that China wants to be and what do they tell us about the kind of order that China would like to shape for our region. So structural sea power, this type of sea power to try to change the regional order is obviously very important for a middle power country like Australia. The second type of sea power, economic sea power, I'm not going to go too much into because Michelle did a wonderful uh, job of talking about some of the blue economy. But I did want to say that when I think about this as a form of sea power, uh, some colleagues and I uh, last year published a piece on maritime geoeconomics. And this is basically the idea of how states can leverage economic statecraft uh, in order to pursue strategic ends. Uh, and we can see uh, only recently, uh, yesterday I think it was, uh, there was the Belt Road Initiative Forum held. I don't know whether any of you caught up with that in the news. Uh, but the Belt Road Initiative has a strong maritime part to it, the Maritime Silk Road. Uh, and there are important questions around uh, how to secure maritime infrastructure in Australia, but also in the region. Uh, we can talk about things like, uh, well, offshore wind, as we heard about before, but also so issues of subterranean sovereignty. How are states going to be able to secure things like submarine cables that are crucial um, for data and communication, for example? Uh, so the economic sea power is really about how particularly these big powers like China are going to be able to leverage these uh, economic whether it's infrastructure, whether it's economic power, whether it's economic influence via the Belt and Road Initiative to try to also shape the regional and global order. But just to add to this, the economic and military powers, these are self-reinforcing. Global economic prosperity is built on the back of accruing more military power, the kind that might be necessary uh, for command and control of the sea. The third type of sea power that I think is important for uh, thinking about global and international regions, but also Australian security, is civil sea power. Uh, now, I haven't really thought this one through too much, but Geoffrey Till said that sea power 
is more than just military power. There is more to sea power than grey painted ships with numbers on the side. And in many ways we can interpret this. There are obviously other types of ships that are involved in issues of maritime governance. But I think one of the most important things that we are seeing in terms of the regional security environment is this blurring of the lines between civil and military activities through uh, what has become known much more regularly as the grey zone. Although, Richard, you might want to talk about the grey zone during Q&A, and it might begin with, this is not a new concept. Of course, the grey zone, political warfare is not a new concept, but I think what the recent discussions is showing us is the intensification of this, the blurring of the civil and military in areas of particular strategic concern, the South China Sea, the East China Sea and Taiwan Strait being three crucial areas. And this is, I think, civil sea power is in itself a, a type of sea power, for particularly for states that aren't reluctant to blur the lines between the civil and the military. I mean, it's kind of been long understood since Huntington was writing in the 60s that democratic states separate out and silo out the military and, and the civil. Uh, but there are states, and China is the obvious example, who don't see that as being necessary politically and who are quite prepared to use non-military assets, whether it's coast guards, but also fishing vessels uh, in order to pursue strategic ends because it presents advantages. It makes it very difficult for other states uh, to defend against. And we are seeing that uh, most acutely in Southeast Asia, um, where you have uh, smaller Southeast Asian states, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, uh, who have to figure out ways of defending their maritime interests in this context. Uh, and it also presents uh, an interesting challenge for Australia as well, less so on the forefront of um, the specific grey zone in the maritime uh, than some of these other states, but in terms of how does Australia assist other countries in the region in dealing with these challenges. Uh, and it's interesting, I mean, we're, at the moment there is a review uh, or the, the review, I, I think, has been finished, uh, but it hasn't been publicly announced, as, as far as I can see, into, you know, Australia's surface ships. Uh, and there was an interesting article earlier in October about, you know, what Australia needs to do in terms of naval surface ships. But what I find interesting about this is that while China is building up its naval capabilities, it's using ships uh, that aren't necessarily naval ships to territorialise the South China Sea with big consequences, I think, for regional understandings of maritime order that can have um, implications for states like Australia who are particularly invested in norms of freedom of navigation. Which gets me to my fourth type of sea power, normative sea power, uh, which is looking well beyond the use of capabilities, military capabilities, but even beyond naval diplomacy, to think about the oceans as a marketplace for ideas. Uh, so this is really, I think, where my research has been um, focused on at the moment, the, the idea that 
oceans are increasingly a site of normative contestation, fights over ideas and principles and values, essentially. Uh, and this is important because over 70% of the Earth's surface comprises these vast interconnected bodies of water that somehow need to be governed and, you know, sometimes that might be, you know, within a maritime jurisdiction of a state, but there's a whole area of high seas that needs to be collectively governed. So at the heart of this ideological contest over oceans lies an enduring question about the relationship between sovereignty on the one hand and the seas on the other. To what extent can states exert a sovereignty jurisdiction over the seas? Where does the balance lie between the free seas on the one hand and the closed seas on the other? And global capitalism rests upon an assumption that the seas remain free and open for commercial trade. That's obviously very important. And Free Sea advocates that military ships should also uh, be afforded maximum rights of maritime manoeuvrability. Uh, but these are very significant questions being asked across the region is what are the rules that should govern the seas? How should the rules that are embedded in the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea be interpreted? UNCLOS was a remarkable achievement uh, in a lot of ways, but it's a compromised, uh, it, you know, it's an, it's an exemplary case study in pragmatic compromise in global governance. There's grey areas, there's loopholes, there's gaps, there's things that UNCLOS didn't cover, uh, and that states are able to weaponise or leverage these gaps within the international legal order in order to try to advance their strategic claims. But smaller states, system ineffectual, as Kahane would have said, smaller states, they can play really important roles in defending their maritime interests. They can use public diplomacy. Uh, they can use international maritime dispute resolution processes. Indeed, Timor-Leste used international maritime dispute resolution processes quite effectively uh, in the Timor Sea dispute with Australia. They can use collective oceans diplomacy around issues such as global sea level rise and how that's going to affect maritime boundaries. Uh, and and so we shouldn't forget the very important role of ideas uh, in how states seek to deploy sea power and how uh, this might actually shape global and regional order. So I just want to finish up with what that means for Australia. And I think what we need is a modern maritime strategy that is built on all elements of statecraft that can adequately grapple with the complexities of sea power. Now, Joanne Wallace, who is a professor of international security and I actually have a book coming out next April called Girt by Sea. So this is a, a plug, I guess you could say for that. Um, <laughs> but in this book, we look at Australia's interests in key maritime areas, the North Seas, Torres Strait, Timor, Arafur and Coral Seas, the Western Pacific, the South China Sea, the South Pacific, the Indian Ocean and the Southern Ocean. Australia has interests in all six of these maritime domains, uh, but they're different types of interests and they have different relationships uh, within countries in those areas. So we're really hoping to reorient Australia's strategic imagination, drawing its gaze back from distant horizons to interrogate and foreground the opportunities and 
threats that it faces in the maritime domains closer to home. We know that Australia is an island continent. It is girt by sea, but it's also a nation of over 8,000 islands, some of which house communities with distinctive languages and cultures and that lie across these multiple oceans and seas linking Australia to its neighbours in Southeast Asia, the Pacific Islands, New Zealand and South Asia. So I think Australia recognises quite clearly the impacts of structural sea power, that the maritime domain has become a frontline theatre uh, over the last decade for competition that operates on multiple levels, economic, military, strategic and diplomatic, particularly between China and the United States. But I would like to uh, join uh, the call for a more holistic and comprehensive maritime security strategy, a reimagining of uh, what Australia's security interests look like beyond just the defence and beyond just the military. Security debates rarely take stock of the full range of security challenges faced by Australia and other states in the region. Uh, and so we're really using the maritime domain as a case study in looking at some of the difficulties in achieving a joined up approach to national security. So I might leave it there because I think I've taken up enough time, but I would like to once again thank the ANI and thank Peter for inviting me to share some of these ideas today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing and following Saltwater Strategists wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about the Australian Naval Institute on our website, navalinstitute.com.au, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you're interested in general maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events relating to maritime affairs. A big thank you to our Goldrick Seminar sponsor, Lurson Australia, whose support is vital to bring you these timely and important discussions on maritime security and our annual Goldrick Seminar. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>